0: Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with... Spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information.
1: The
2: views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and did not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees. It started when I was in fifth grade. My mother put me into the karate with a guy named Jeff Doucette, who just happened to be a child molester. So he grooms me, or I guess... Uh, tested my boundaries and I passed the test and I became Jeff's love interest for about a year. Doucette had abducted 11-year-old Jody Plochet several weeks earlier and taken him to California. When Jody was rescued and returned to his family, his father Gary was coping with reports that
3: Doucette had sexually assaulted his son. We didn't know what to do, you just feel helpless. Ten days later, when the police flew Doucette back to face trial, Gary Plochet was
2: waiting
1: Welcome back to The Truth About True Crime. I'm your host, Amanda Knox. This season, I'm exploring the violent and controversial world of vigilante justice— From the heroic Avengers that dominate our box office to the horrors of lynching that our society has yet to fully reckon with. The morality of vigilante action seems to shift with every case. And it depends on where you stand, with the victim or with the vigilante. The Sundance TV docuseries No One Saw a Thing tells the story of how town bully Ken Rex was gunned down in broad daylight in front of dozens of witnesses. The moral complexity arises from the legitimate fear that the townspeople had for their own safety and their legitimate worry about the inadequacy of the police and the courts to protect them. This episode, we'll be looking at vigilantism motivated not out of fear or safety or tribalism, but out of vengeance. Two stories that highlight very different kinds of vendettas and reveal our complicated psychological relationship with vigilantism. For it seems that many of us have a deep desire to see people rectify their personal injustice in personal ways. In 1984, in the Baton Rouge Metropolitan Airport, a man named Gary Plochet committed murder but he did so in a way that made him a hero to many. It's one of the most famous vigilante killings in recent history, and Plochet's name has become a genericized trademark, the way people use Kleenex to mean tissue. As in, someone ought to Gary Plochet that guy. In looking into this story, I wanted to know not just what happened, but why it happened, why it became a cultural touchstone, And what it says about us that we fixate on this particular story. I was fortunate enough to connect with Jody Plochet, Gary's son, who you heard at the top of the episode. Jody's 46 now, lives in Louisiana, and likes to cook. He was more forthright and matter of fact about his traumatic past than I'd expected.
2: before Jeff Ducet had entered our life I was my dad's favorite there's no doubt I was daddy's boy and once Jeff had got hold of me he was jealous of my father and didn't want me around my dad so he kind of used his manipulation to divide me and my father my dad was a guy that would pick up stray animals he'd you know get critter corn for the squirrels and and I, I mean my dad was the nicest kindest man that, that you could ever meet
1: you normally hear people say this about victims, not killers.
4: Gary and I were high school friends. I knew June uh, Jody's mother, but I hadn't seen them for several years.
1: That's Colonel Mike Barnett, who was escorting Jeff Doucette through the airport that day, when Gary Plochet made his fateful move.
4: I was a chief of detectives for the sheriff's office. I had a call from June saying that, their son had been abducted, that his karate instructor, Jeff said, had left town with Jody without their permission. Well, he had made some bad business deals in that year,
2: and he was facing uh, either going to court or he had owed some guys some money, and uh, he left town and he took me. So that made it kidnapping. Um, He also told my mother, uh, if you ever want to see Jody alive again, you'll meet me in new york even though we were in los angeles and that made it aggravated kidnapping so he was facing basically the rest of his life in jail
4: for several days we tape recorded and attempted to have the line tapped by the phone company to find out where they were we could just now get him to stay on the phone enough June, the mother would talk to Jody for a couple of moments, and then uh, Jeff would get on the phone and make demands. He just wanted June to bring the rest of the family uh, and come and join them and all live happily ever after in some other place.
1: Sounds like he wasn't all there, that character.
4: Was he thinking normally? No. Many times, molesters, fantasize a love relationship between them and the victim, Uh, actually flying back on the airplane. Doucette confessed to having abused Jody as well as a number of other boys, and uh, even asked the question, would, uh, do you think after I get out of prison that Jody and I'll be able to be together? When they brought me back from
2: California, they took me to the hospital, they performed what I describe as a complete physical exam.
4: We asked that a rape kit be done on Jody whenever he was picked up in California. I knew eventually
2: that was gonna come back, proving that Jeff had been raping me. And so, I made it a deal with myself that I wasn't going to tell on Jeff. So when they brought me back home, they, they questioned me, well, you know, did he ever touch you? Tell us what happened. I mean, they really weren't nice. They tried to tell me I'd get in trouble if I was lying, and I knew that wasn't true, but I, I lied, I lied, I lied. And so it was probably two, three hours I was being interrogated. And they went back to my parents and they said, either that man didn't touch that boy or that boy is so
4: brainwashed he'll never admit it. That rape kid came back positive and that's when i had a meeting with gary and his wife and told them about it and discussed it now gary's initial reaction was he went off like most people would do i mean he um he cried he screamed he threatened he did all those things ultimately calming down and discussing what was best psychologically for jody So she sits me down,
2: and she said, Mike Burnett came over and told me that the rape rape report came back positive. And I said, what does that mean? I knew what it meant, but I was trying trying to be stupid. I said, what does that mean? She said, it means that Jeff fooled with you. She was as calm as could be. I was surprised at how calm she was. And I didn't know that as soon as I'd leave the house, she'd cry and was hysterical. But, I mean, she did a very good job of just being calm and allowing me to process through it. She was my counselor. She was kind of who I got my support from. And I told her, I said, look, you know, don't tell daddy. Well, she did. And she told (laughs) told that, you know, he was my father and he had the right to know. And some of those details are kind of what led my dad to you know lose his mind and go shoot him. My parents had been separated for nine months. I was kidnapped for almost two weeks. And then I get back and he finds out that this man had been sexually abusing me for the past year. That literally pushed my dad over the edge.
4: The day of the uh, shooting, I had told Gary that we were coming in on a different day. Uh, Gary was uh, in a local uh, restaurant at lunch and ran into one of the TV people So that's how Gary learned the time and place that they were coming back. He goes and picks up Jody and uh, he had been drinking and he asked Jody some questions about exactly what had happened and Jody not knowing any different gave him a very, very, very descriptive idea of what had been going on. Gary, hearing that, that was enough to set him off. And uh, he dropped the boy off and got a pistol. And when we got off the plane, the TV camera was going with the lights shining out. It's very difficult to see behind the light. We were walking through the airport. Gary was... Talking on the telephone with a hat on and his back to us, Uh, I didn't recognize him at all as we passed. He
2: had a gun in his boot. He reached to get his gun. And when he did, he turned and shot Doucette in the ear. Right in front of a television camera.
1: Even knowing what was about to happen, it was hard for me to watch the footage. But the moment right after Gary shoots Jeff Dusset is almost touching. Gary Plochet hangs up the payphone before he's tackled. It's not an action that rings out, man gone crazy with grief or rage. I hesitate to draw any meaningful conclusions from small actions like this about why Gary did what he did. But Gary himself told the world.
4: Gary, Why, why Gary?
5: Gary, why? Gary, why?
1: That's Abram McGull, the camera operator who filmed the shooting.
5: And to this day, it stands out in my mind, the uh, shooter, Gary Ploche, says, if it had been your child, you would have done the same thing, too. He told
2: me, he said, I could no longer live with that man on this earth. He said Mm -hmm. one
4: of us was dying that night. Gary was almost catatonic. I mean, he would cry some, he would set, completely quiet, and it was hour and a half or two hours after the shooting itself before Gary started talking a little bit. And his answer was, I just had to do it, Mike. You did that to Jody. I just had to do it.
1: It sounds like Gary Plochet took action without really thinking about the consequences. And strangely, I think this recklessness is part of what draws people to this story. His willingness to do what he felt needed to be done, no matter the consequences. What people don't often consider is how those consequences affected Jody, whose kidnapping and abuse set Gary off in the first place.
2: I had been through a lot, you know, having been sexually abused for a year, kidnapped. I kind of just wanted to... Like most sexual abuse victims, just let it go away. Just you know, let's not talk about it. I, I, the last thing I wanted everyone in the world to know what had happened to me, I was mad at what daddy did. You talk about uh, an 11-year-old, and all of a sudden thrust into the national spotlight, and they did not name the victims back then. It was, you know, the man who had sexually abused Carrie Poitier, so i would ride on the bus, we had a radio, and so they'd have the music on the bus, but then they'd go, in the news today, Gary Polsky will be making a, and, you know, for molesting the boy sitting in the back of the bus. Look, kids, everyone kept telling me, you know, look, Jody, he did this for you, and I kept telling them, like, this isn't what I wanted. I didn't, I mean, I I really had no problem with Jeff going to jail for the rest of his life. I wasn't asking for Daddy to kill him. I wasn't asking for Daddy to put himself in a situation where Daddy was now going to be prosecuted. At the time, in 1984, we didn't know whether Daddy was going to go to jail for the rest of his life.
1: What Jody deserved is one thing. What Jeff Doucette deserved is another.
4: At the time, I was mad at Gary. He did the wrong thing. He should not have done that. Jeff would have spent the rest of his life in prison here, which to me would have been a better punishment. I understand his reaction. Police have the same reaction that anyone else has. You talk to a victim and you feel for them and you have your own children and you think to yourself, God, if that happened to me, I don't know what I would do. Mm. But you also have a sense of order at the same time. Everyone has to live by the law or we have chaos. The fact that Jeff never got his day in court, he deserved that and didn't get it. That's part of the wrong that Gary did.
1: But the public didn't react to Gary's vigilante murder of Jeff Doucette like he'd done something wrong.
4: After this occurred, we had... I mean, hundreds of telephone calls that uh, came into the office Say, why did you uh, arrest him? Uh, You know, he did what he should have done. The guy deserved it, that sort of thing. Probably a 25 to 1 ratio of the calls that said, y'all got to put him in jail or whatever. For months and months until the case was finally resolved. It was the number one subject of talk around the dinner table. Baton Rouge was probably split down the middle with people saying, uh, I would have done what Gary did or wished I would have. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, whether or not they would have had the guts to carry it out is another issue. That was a real reason that he was never really convicted. We would have never found a jury that would have unanimously found him guilty of... uh, and sent him to prison for what he did here. Flochet after
2: pleading no contest to manslaughter, got off with only five years probation.
4: Gary pled to a lesser offense that did not have a mandatory jail time. And as part of the plea bargain, Gary basically said, I'll plead to anything y'all want and I'll do as much probation or whatever else y'all want, but I'm not spending a day in jail. I'd rather go to trial. I have a family. Who's going to take care of them whenever I'm in prison? You know, he was thinking about that at that point, but not at the point that he actually pulled the trigger.
1: It wasn't just the vigilante killing that made Gary Plochet a legend. It was the fact that he was never really held accountable the other half of this story is the public support for Gary Plochet getting off with probation after killing another human being with a gunshot to the head in an airport. How could people be okay with that?
4: I heard a number of times during other rapes and molestations uh, where's Gary Plochet when you need him? The public, they see people doing things to other people that are so heinous that. They believe those people need to be uh, dealt with, Mm -hmm. and not necessarily always by legal means. Mm -hmm. So Gary was pretty popular in a lot of quarters around here in Baton Rouge, Uh, not only because he was a very personable, but uh, he was kind of every man's hero because of what he did.
1: Personally, I think Jeff Doucette should have stood trial been removed from society, and given therapy and treatment. I see him as a broken human being. But to many people, Jeff Doucette was less than human, a pedophile, a child rapist, an unfixable monster. And they celebrate the man who killed the monster.
2: It's on YouTube, it's been viewed over 20 million times. It pops up on my Facebook page about every month.
1: Is that the most bizarre thing for you? How do you feel
2: about that? It's weird because for people to tag me on Facebook and have it it goes like 1984. So what's that 35 years ago? And people are still talking about it. I mean, people will still message me. I've got like, you know, cooking videos on YouTube, and, and people will be like, your father's a hero. This right here is the, the greatest trick in the history of making gumbos. People talk they about it. They won't say nothing about my food. They don't say, hey, that gumbo looks great. They're just like, your father's a hero.
1: I know exactly how Jody feels. When I post a picture of my cat on Instagram, I inevitably get non-sequitur comments calling me a psycho and others calling me inspiring or saying, I love you. I know that these comments, good and bad, aren't really directed at me, but at an idea connected to me as the idea of vigilante hero Gary Plochet is connected to the real-life Jody, Whether I like it or not, I have to live with this grand idea of me hovering over my life. And so does Jody.
2: If you look at the video on YouTube, there's a lot of likes. There's a lot more likes than dislikes. I'm like, I'm one of them.
1: When I last checked, the video of Gary killing Jeff Doucette had a 49 to 1 ratio of likes to dislikes. And you can scroll through comments for days and find one after another painting Gary as a hero. Five years probation, should have received the Medal of Honor. And the father of the year goes to Gary. Just write it off as DSAF, did society a favor. And Jody can't escape this strange hero worship of his father, for it comes up as a comparison all the time.
2: Like Michigan State's Larry Nasser mm-hmm. at the victim impact statement where the dad was like, just give me five minutes. Give me five minutes in a room with him. And then he tried to kind of charge at, at Larry Nasser. And a lot of people on Twitter were like, oh, then he should have Gary ploche him. He, you know, get him the Gary Ploche treatment. So... I understand people's — you know, who likes a kid diddler? No one. So I understand their feelings. It's just, again, saying it and doing it are two different things.
1: When people call Gary Plochet a hero, I doubt they're taking into account all the emotional fallout his vigilante action had on his own family. But Gary wasn't taking that into account either. So what should you do when you find out your child has been sexually assaulted?
4: I
2: had a woman one time write me a letter, and she said that she told her daughter that if somebody ever would touch her inappropriate, that it's worse than murder. It kills your soul. And I was like, oh, good God. This little girl will never, ever tell if she's ever touched because she's not going to want her mother to know her soul is dead. So, I mean, I understand the people you know, cheering on my father, but they got to understand that that also isn't the right way to go about handling trauma. So my mother being calm and basically telling me, it's okay, um, you can go back to being normal, that's what I think helped the most. If you're sexually abused, with the proper support, you can heal.
1: Jody's mother did the quiet, hard work of helping him heal, but no one's calling her Mother of the Year. What Gary did? That's the easy solution— easy because no one else had to agree with that plan but him. Agreement is hard. Due process is hard. Stepping around those safeguards is what makes vigilantism fundamentally selfish.
2: I think part of my dad's motivation was not trusting the justice system. Hmm. And so he he figured Jeff would get a slap on the wrist and would be back out, you know, doing this to other kids too. Not to mention... He had felt he had destroyed his family. But I believe that as Americans, we have the protection, the right to a fair trial. And I think that Jeff deserved a, a trial. We don't need a society where people are, you know, shooting people in the airport. So,
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know, I understand, again, what my dad, why he did it. Um, would I have advised him not to do it <laughs> as an adult now? Absolutely. Now, Jeff brother, and, and Jeff brother even said that he said, look, I didn't go kill Gary Ploche. He's like, I could have easily wouldn't kill Gary Ploche. He could have got revenge for his brother. And then, well, you know what, now my dad's brother has to go kill his brother. And, and it, mm-hmm. where does it stop? So we need to let the justice system handle the disputes, not ourselves.
1: Colonel Mike Barnett, who yelled, Why Gary? The moment after the shot rang out, is with Jody on the importance of due process. But both of them made a point to convey that understanding Gary's motives was important to them. You don't have to agree to understand.
4: The end result of that is almost always worse than the people going to jail. But in the heat of the moment, those things do happen. I think it's human. The instinct to protect your children and your loved ones, I think, is uh, in all of us. And it's just a matter of circumstances and how
1: For that drives you. Do you at all think that our American culture that celebrates extrajudicial figures like the Lone Ranger and Batman played any role in Gary's actions?
4: I'm not smart enough to figure that out. (laughs) Uh, I, I will tell you that the Batman always wins and it's always great and everybody, but everybody understands on some level that that's not reality. Reality is a policeman walks in and says, your child has been kidnapped. We've recovered him and I did a rape test, and he's been sodomized repeatedly over months and months and months, and this is the guy who did it. That's the day that you separate Batman from reality.
1: When it comes to vigilante vendettas, we very often don't want the reality. We forget the bigger picture, ignore the details, even invent them. Sometimes, we want to believe in the righteousness of a vigilante so badly that we'll transform a man at the edge of his sanity into father of the year. And as time passes, the legend grows. The man becomes less complex, glossed by the lens of vigilante hero worship. And that's exactly what happened with Marvin Heemeyer in Granby, Colorado, who you will find celebrated left and right for turning his bulldozer into a tank and attempting something usually reserved for comic book villains, trying to destroy an entire town.
5: Because the town council had gone to the effort in 91 to rezone that property, and I had screwed up the town's plans, the town had a hard-on from Harvey Meyer. And they said, we'll get him. They started getting me in 1992 when they kept me off the sanitation district. They got me when Gus Harris sold the property to Cody Docheff. They got me when they issued the building permit to Cody Docheff for the concrete plant and denied that it was for the concrete plant. Although everybody knows it was because it is the concrete plant today. That's their building. Are we all stupid? I I shoot the truth in their face, and they couldn't deal with it. They're going to have to deal with it. I guarantee you. I am going to make them deal with it.
1: In June of two thousand four. 52-year-old Granby, Colorado resident Marvin Hemeyer was pissed off. By then, his beef with neighbor Cody Docheff, Mayor Thompson, and the Granby Town Board of Trustees was over a decade long. But he was about to bring this feud to an end in an act of vengeance that would make him a legend. To this day, many refer to his rampage through the town as spectacular and badass, even noble the reasonable man driven to do unreasonable things. Others think back on that destruction as insane and terrifying. The path that led Marv Hemeyer to build an armor-plated bulldozer, crash through his town, causing $7 million of damage, and ultimately take his own life is a convoluted one, but also bureaucratic and mundane. Disputes over easements, sewer lines, Zoning restrictions. I spoke with Patrick Brower, a journalist based in Granby, who covered every twist and turn of the saga for the local newspaper, Sky High News, and who knew Marvin Hemeyer personally.
3: He was a snowmobiling enthusiast and a muffler shop owner who moved to Granby in 1991. He was a pretty big guy. He was 6'2", 220, 230 pounds. He was sort of brooding, sort of taciturn. Some people felt threatened by him just because he was always threatening to sue or to fight uh, town proceedings. But he could also be friendly uh, at times. So there were two sides of him, but he could be pretty pushy and demanding when it came to money. And, you know, if you disagreed with him, uh, there was no middle ground with Marv. Either you were with him or against him.
1: Heemeyer killed himself at the end of his rampage, so he's not here to speak on his own behalf. But he did record two and a half hours of tapes in the months before he completed his MK tank, which later became known as the Killdozer.
3: He's an unreliable narrator. Most of those tapes are him setting up this narrative that he was put upon and treated poorly by the people of Gramby.
1: Heemeyer listed Brower as one of his many enemies, so in fairness, as Broward leads us through this story, I'll also be giving room to Heemeyer himself to chime in with material from those tapes.
5: Hello. My name is Marvin Heemeyer. Today is, uh, let's see here, April 13th, 2004. You're just going to have to take my word that this is Marv Heemeyer, serial number 503689471. I haven't done much. I mean, I graduated from high school to 28th of my class of 29. It's no big deal. I wasn't intelligent. I wasn't smart. I wasn't stupid. But I wasn't educated. I didn't have the knack to sit in a classroom and, and be a bookworm. I don't know why. I I, I was... I may have, I don't know why, but God built me. He had this plan clear back then. Maybe, if you believe in predestination, which I do, maybe it was planned before I was born.
3: I interviewed him many times. I was the editor of the local newspaper at the time, and he came in, and we would personally talk about his letters to the editor and all that sort of stuff.
5: He said that he was going to come down and we'd do an article on my little business. Well, he never did do it. You know, he was doing everything he could to keep me from getting any additional uh, publicity. It's one of those, it's, it's a kind of a community that in order for you to get ahead, you have to keep the neighbor down. You've got to keep, you, you got to be bad everybody.
1: This is a theme that crops up a lot in Meyer's tapes. The community rejecting him, abuse of power the man stepping on the little guy. Clearly, Heemeyer felt oppressed. But why? What actually happened over that decade-long feud? Back in the early 90s, Marv Heemeyer outbid Cody Dochev on a two-acre property in Granby. Dochev, who already owned a neighboring plot, bought the plot on Heemeyer's other side, and submitted a proposal to the Granby Town Board of Trustees to rezone his properties in order to build a concrete batch plant. Seeing an opportunity, Hemeyer offered to sell his property to Dochev at an inflated price. Docheff refused. So Hemeyer sued Dochev and proceeded to campaign with all his might against Dochev's concrete batch plant proposal. See what I mean by bureaucratic and mundane?
3: He organized public gatherings, and as the zoning approval process went through the Granby Town Board of Trustees, he was always there to voice objections, and he would submit formal complaints against the process.
5: I'm fighting for my life here because this is my future. This is my retirement. I need to get this stopped.
3: He actually went out and actively solicited signatures on petitions from people in town to voice their opposition to the concrete plan but he got very few signatures, mainly because the Dochefs kept improving the project. They did dust control, they limited hours of operation, they agreed to cover piles of material. The problem is that Marv didn't really want it to be a better batch plant, he just wanted to stop it.
1: I wouldn't want a noisy, dusty, concrete batch plant next to my business either. Hemeyer's objections successfully set Cody Dochev's proposal back a year, but that didn't set him at ease.
3: He was paranoid about the process, assuming that they were all on the side of the Dochevs and that they were doing everything they could to get the plan approved.
1: In Hemeyer's eyes, the board of trustees was corrupt, and Cody Dochev.
5: about the rudest, most arrogant person. I mean, this guy's just a fucking asshole.
1: He really didn't like Cody Dochev.
5: Ah, oh, this guy was—I mean, he's Mr. Napoleon all the way in the worst way. The guy just couldn't deal with the fact that he was little, and uh, it, it definitely depraved the man. I mean, the guy is—is is really psychological. He needs some psychological help.
1: Meanwhile, the town came down on Marv Hemeyer because his property wasn't up to code. They told him he'd have to connect to the sewer main at his own expense of sixty to $70,000.
3: The policy is with all these entities up here is that if you want to hook on, it's your expense, you know. Mm-hmm. And he got very angry about that and thought they were messing with his business.
1: The people who paint Marv Hemeyer as a reasonable man forced to do unreasonable things point to moments like this. Regardless, at this point, Cody Dochev saw an opportunity of his own.
3: After the Dochefs put in new water and sewer lines very close to Marv's property, they called him up and said, Hey, Marv, mm-hmm. we'll let you hook onto the new sewer and water mains for free. Just drop your lawsuit, and Marv hung on by
1: Again, Marv Hemeyer refused to cooperate. And instead of dealing with that problem…
3: He got the property sold to uh, the trash company for $400,000.
1: That's 10 times the amount Hemeyer originally bought the property for. A massive profit. More than he was hoping to make in selling the property to Dochev before. But that good news was soon countered by bad news.
3: The lawsuit was settled in the court. The judge ruled uh, in every count against Hemeyer. So he lost mm-hmm. the lawsuit against the town and his neighbors, the Docheffs. I covered all the hearings. He wasn't treated poorly. In fact, he was treated with kid gloves. People were kind of scared of him. He just didn't win the fight over the concrete plant.
1: But to Marv, it was personal.
5: I am not going to live the life they want me to live. You know, they think that I should have kept my muffler shop going. I should have put up with all the dust, all the, the snickers. Uh, <laughs> You know, the the, the town council, I'd pass them in the post office, and they'd snicker at me after they knew I lost.
1: It seemed that he had no choice but to walk away from this decade-long dispute.
3: After the hearings were over and everything, most people had forgotten about it. Yet here's Marv stewing about this stuff like crazy for two and a half full years, stewing about it.
1: Meaning, Marv hadn't just walked away with his tail between his legs the shape of his revenge was already forming in his mind.
5: I realized one day when I was sitting in the hot tub, and I mean, I was, I was weeping. A peace came over me that has only come over me a few times before in my life. Where I knew that what I was doing was tough, but it was the right thing and that it was above me. It wasn't me. I was doing this because God wanted me to do it. And I didn't understand it. I said, why did you ask me to do this? Is that why I've never been married? So I didn't have a family? I'm carrying the cross willingly now. At first, I fought it. But it has to be done. And the world will write stories about how wrong I am and everything, but there is no way to make this right. Had they not meddled in my business, this would have turned out, this whole thing would have turned out completely different. If they would have just left me alone, could have done a lot of things. What I own is gone, but it's just gonna be a pittance compared to what I'm going to take.
1: After a year of planning, he sold his property to the trash company. He leased back the large shed, and he started buying concrete and metal plating. He spent several months transforming his bulldozer into a military-grade tank. And whatever you think about Hemeyer's ultimate intentions, the way he executed them, was impressive.
3: He had sliding windows with bulletproof Lexan for little viewing ports. He had five remote cameras mounted on the outside of the killdozer so he could see where he was going. The rifles that were poking out were in little pinch holes on brochures where it was just a barrel sticking out so you couldn't shoot in around those. And he had three rifles in it. He had a a thirty caliber rifle mounted in the front. In the back he had a fifty caliber rifle. And on the right side, he had a 203 uh, semi automatic rifle similar to an AR 15.
1: It took Hemeyer a long time to build this machine that would deliver his vengeance. But he wasn't cackling in the shadows while welding on metal plates. The further along Hemeyer got in building his killdozer, the more real it became, the more he fantasized about being caught.
5: I had hoped that somebody would catch me and that this whole thing would stop. And that would be a good sign for me not to do it.
1: But every moment that he didn't get caught was meaningful as well. A sign from God to keep building his homemade tank.
3: There were many things that he depicts as omens. He tried to sell the dozer at his auction for $40,000. Nobody bought it. He says it just barely fit into the shed when he drove it in there.
5: You almost had to grease it to get it in there. Why did that particular dozer fit in the building?
3: That that was also a sign from God that he should do it.
5: I spent the whole summer of 2003 in that friggin' building. Why didn't I get caught? Why haven't I been caught? (laughs) Last fall, I had this dozer about half done by maybe three quarters done and uh, they need to have their insurance man come in and see the storage building they want to see inside now I had to clean that whole shop up hide all the steel the welders and I covered the dozer which I I had the whole cab uh, armor on and uh, I covered it up with tarps and taped it all shut and uh, I says, you know, they're going to come in here and they're going to get nosy. They're going to find out that what I'm building this. And, you know, somebody's going to go call the cops and they're going to put a stop to it. So these guys come in. Oh, well, what's this? Oh, this is the dozer. Oh, okay. Uh, well, what's this left, they say. And I say, well, I made up this story about this guy from Minnesota who uh, was working on a system to deep freeze things. Uh cyber Cyro- or something like that i said this this professor was perfecting a chirogenics cooling system to go in the intake of the diesel engine which would increase the uh, hourly fuel consumption i, I had this all bullshit story and they went along with it you know i said i, I couldn't believe it when they walked out the door huh, i'm safe how come they didn't catch me It was right there under their nose. Well, I wasn't supposed to get caught. Not yet.
1: So God didn't stop him.
5: No, God didn't (laughs) stop him. People will say that, why did he do that? He had such a good life. Well, I think there's something you should learn here. For as good as a man can be, also can he be as bad. When you visit evil upon someone, be assured it will revisit you they took away my life they took away my future they took away my hope I cannot operate in a community of people that that does that to their neighbors you put yourself in my shoes and tell me how you would feel at 50 years old realizing that you've wasted 10 years of your life because of someone's malice. I think God will bless me to get the machine done, to drive it. You're either gonna blow me right off the fucking streets, I'm gonna have a heart attack and die, cause I'm all pumped up. The machine's gonna break. Or maybe, maybe it'll go all day and I'll run out of fuel. I don't know. I got a lot of fuel in that thing, let me tell you. It's the only way I know how to do it. I'll be dead when it's over, but that's my conviction. And for the people that are out there that hear this, please pray for me. Pray for my soul. I believe that that I'm doing the right thing. I don't think God would have let me get this far if it was the wrong thing.
3: You know, it's a normal Friday in Granby, and all of a sudden there's a call to dispatch from a woman working in the trash company. 911, emergency. There was a weird looking tank slash bulldozer driving around knocking things over and smashing into buildings and they better come down here and check it out. And uh, sure enough, Marv fired up the killdozer and smashed out of the side of the building and immediately started to attack the concrete plant. Some neighbors tried to shove stuff in the treads of the dozer and they couldn't stop it. Cody Dotshaft tried to jump on it, but slipped off because Marv had greased up the side. Then Cody went and grabbed a front-end loader and slammed into the dozer several times. Then Marv opened up with a volley from one of his rifles. It's a miracle that Cody wasn't killed. The state trooper pulled up and started walking toward the dozer. and Marv opened up with the 50 caliber rifle and fired five rounds, but they all went over the state trooper's head. By now, police had shown up. Sergeant Rich Garner, Uh, Running around to one side and uh, shot at it a few times, and then Marv shot at him with the 30 caliber. And as Marv was finishing up destroying the bash plant, a bunch of uh, troopers and sheriff's deputies were hunkered up behind some uh, road barriers, and Marv went and attacked them, shooting at them and also pushing over a bunch of these concrete barriers. It was at that point that the undersheriff said, you know, this guy's trying to kill people. We need to stop him in any way we can. Marv went on to crush a sheriff's deputy car, and then he headed toward the east into town. The dozer destroyed the front of the Mountain Parks Electric Building. Then Marv destroyed a construction company office, and uh, then it went over to the town hall, uh, totaling it. Just literally two minutes before he hit the building, there were five children in there in a reading group. The whole time, police were kind of following, trying to figure out ways to stop the dozer, but they can't. The dozer uh, went to Liberty Savings, destroyed the front of that, and it proceeded over to the Sky High News, my office, further east in town. Marv turned right and uh, smashed right into our building. The building literally was falling down around us as we very quickly ran out the back. I ran to my house because one of the policemen in the building told me, you know, you ought to get out of here. You're on his
5: list twice. This newspaper guy Patrick Breyer, this guy is the scum of the earth. I mean, he's a pothead, you know, big liberal, army brat, has had everything in his life given to him. You know, he's, and he, but he knows how to abuse the power of the pen. And that's a big thing up here, is abuse of power.
3: I was full of fear because they weren't stopping this dozer, and I ran home as fast as I could. because My pregnant wife was at home taking an afternoon nap, and I had a one-year-old child at the time. And I thought he could easily destroy our house, so I immediately got them out of the house and drove away. He then went and attacked uh, the Thompsons' property in Granby, including the home of the Thompsons, where just 20 minutes prior, the uh, elderly Mrs. Thompson had been sleeping. He then went down to a uh, propane tank bulk storage yard in Western Granby and proceeded to try to blow up the propane tanks, Uh, but he failed. Then he went back into town and uh, shortly before attacking the gamble store, you can see a large puff of uh, steam come out from under the dozer. It had overheated, blew its main cooling hose. Anyway, he goes in and just completely destroys the gambles and then the dozer stops. Shortly thereafter, uh, there's a sound of a gunshot from inside the dozer and that was when he killed himself.
1: Fifteen years later, Marv Hemeyer's Killdozer is plastered on t-shirts that read, Tread on Them. And millions of viewers on YouTube tune into segments that retell his epic blaze of glory. I'm making this video to celebrate or commemorate, whatever you want to call it, June 4th, which is Killdozer Day, and I made these awesome shirts, Let Freedom Roll. I've got another one that says, Get Mad and Get Even, Death Before Dishonor. Comments to these videos are almost universally positive. We need a few killdozers to storm Washington D.C. A true patriot, unwilling to submit, the last great American folk hero. I mean,
3: you know, he's in this impregnable machine, kind of like you know uh, Iron Man. He does what he wants. He's carrying out justice against corrupt government. There are some people, even victims, that think they should have kept the dozer and made it into a shrine and all that stuff.
1: Wait, when you say make it into a shrine, do you mean... Yeah, put it on a
3: pedestal (laughs) out in the park so people could come and gawk at it. I'm not kidding. They wanted to have a dozer day celebration in Granby every year.
1: Let's remember, this is a man who wreaked $7 million worth of havoc on his town. How could people idolize him? That YouTuber you heard a second ago offers up a common refrain. So regardless of what you think about his motives and his methods for accomplishing his goals, you have to at least admire the effort and focus that he put into accomplishing them. It reminds me of something David Chase, creator of The Sopranos, once said about getting an audience to side with a despicable character like Tony Soprano, who murders people for his own selfish gain make him good at his job. It's a crucial insight. We are able to separate our moral judgments from our appreciation of skill. But there's one other thing his fans latch onto. The fact that he purposely avoided uh, causing any casualties. It's true that Hemeyer himself was the only casualty of the Killdozer Rampage. But is that due to his restraint? or the saving grace of law enforcement.
3: Everybody says, oh, he didn't try to hurt anybody. He was just out to damage property. Yet, he fired at uh, Cody Docheff. He fired at Dave Petura. He fired at Rich Garner. He fired at uh, sheriff's deputies and state troopers down by the uh, batch plant. He had no way of knowing if those kids were gonna get out of that building. He smashed up offices without knowing people were in there or not. I mean, if I had tripped, he would've killed me. The best thing that the police did in this whole rampage is rather than trying to tell people to stay in houses, they just said, everybody, get out of town. Because if they're destroying buildings, you know, you're a target. I don't think he cared if he killed people. You don't shoot at people if you think you're going to just damage their property.
1: It's a good argument against seeing Marv Heemeyer as a hero. And yet, All the hero worship.
3: If you buy Marv's story, you say, yeah, here's the little guy getting stomped on once too many times by government and now getting back at him. Getting back at corrupt government, corrupt society, and the corrupt news media. And they just love the idea of that kind of a hero.
1: Almost everything you find about Marv Heemeyer every article and YouTube video and documentary, gets hung up on the question of whether or not he was truly wronged in a significant way by his local city government, as if the question of the morality of his actions depends on that. And I already know that some commenters will hear this episode and complain that I'm biased, that I didn't represent the full weight of how Marv Hemeyer was repeatedly screwed over. But here's the thing— Even if everything Marv Hemeyer said was true that the Granby Town Board of Trustees was corrupt and conspiring against him, that Cody Dochev ruined his muffler shop business, that he was defamed by the local newspaper, and that he suffered countless obstacles and disrespects, both big and small none of that justifies waging literal war on his community, destroying public and private infrastructure and endangering people's lives. Marv Heemeyer's Killdozer Rampage was an act of domestic terrorism. He was not a hero. But we don't have to write him off as a terrorist, just as we don't have to write off Gary Plochet as a murderer. These men were just people, people who needed help and didn't get it in time. Marv Hemeyer's rampage lasted two hours and seven minutes. That's a tiny fraction of his fifty two years on this planet. Listening to his tapes, I can't help but feel sad that he's remembered for the most broken moment of his life. If you came into this episode thinking of Gary Plochet or Marv Hemeyer as heroes, I don't want you to lose all respect for them. I don't think they're villains. I hope you gain respect for them as people, complicated, flawed, and worthy of compassion.
5: Hey, I hope you all have a great time, a good life. I've had a great life. And uh, it's Saturday morning, uh, the 22nd of May, 2004. And I'm going to put this tape and tape recorder in a plastic bag and somebody else can try to figure it out. We'll see you later.
1: Next time on The Truth About True Crime, I examine cases of organized groups that band together under a banner and a name. To enforce their version of justice, some of them keep to the shadows, others wear masks, and some even impersonate law enforcement. All of them empowered by some kind of invisible badge. This podcast is written and produced by me, Amanda Knox, and my partner Christopher Robinson, and directed, edited, and sound designed by Galen Mullins. It is executive produced by Malka Media, Sundance TV and AMC Digital Studios. In the meantime, be sure to check out the Sundance TV docuseries, No One Saw a Thing, at sundancetv.com. And please subscribe, rate, review, and share the truth about true crime.